You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. So good. Well, I'm glad to be here with you guys again, diving into Galatians. Um, so again, we see it every time there's journals, there's on the website, we have a reading list that can go along with reading for the upcoming weeks. We can just be a people steeped in it. Because um, we, like we said, for the men's retreat and just in general, just people um, of God, we want to be people of the word and people that know it well and are marinating in it. Um, I know it's a weird de- description, but it sounds great. And it's almost lunchtime, so let's talk about meat. Um, well, just recap really quick. So some of you haven't been able to be with us for every week, um, but if Galatians is at all new to you, it's totally fine. It's great. Um, so Galatia is an area, okay? Just We showed a map last week. I don't have it again this week, but it's an area. So it's churches in this area. It's not a specific church. It's kind of an area. It's a Roman province area. So they also deal with a lot of cultural stuff that has to do with Roman uh, rule and law and religion and all that kind of stuff. Um, but he's writing a letter, Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he's, he has planted many of these churches years before, but now he is writing a letter to re-encourage them because he's heard about some things. He's heard of some ways that they've gone a little bit astray, ways of things that they've heard before and believed in, but now they're getting caught up in culture, getting caught up in some social pressure, um, some issues of the day, and they're starting to kind of backtrack on some of that stuff. So he's specifically um, ta- dealing with these, um, these questions that they have, these Christians have in this world, first century AD, of saying, what does it look like to follow God? What does it look like now to be a child of God, a person of God? And I think we can relate to that question, right? Every generation ever has always asked that question. Today, what does it look like to be a person of God? Um, specifically, Paul addresses a lot of racial tension. So there was this thing of the Jews, the ethnic Jewish people, and then the ethnically Gentile, which is basically anybody else. Um, and so they had the Jews and the Gentiles, and they were kind of battling with like, okay, we both say we're in this faith now. We believe in God. We believe Jesus Christ was Lord. But what does that look like? Does it look like what the Jewish people have always done? Does it look like now nothing about that and just what the Gentiles want to do? And so they're wrestling with that. Some of the Jewish leaders were saying, no, it has to look like you still have to obey some laws, eat certain food, be circumcised, be baptized, like all this kind of stuff, right? And some of the Gentiles are saying, well, no, we don't have to do any of that. We're not Jews, you know? So you can kind of see the tension there. And Paul is addressing this. And last week, he added at the end of chapter 2, uh, or kind of the middle of chapter 2, he added this interaction that, that Paul had with the apostle Peter. Okay, Peter was well known in this, in this Christian movement as an apostle. And Paul had this interaction where Peter was eating with the Gentiles, if you guys remember this. Peter, as a Jew, was eating with the Gentiles, drinking their wine, eating their food. And then some, like, some very um, influential Jewish leaders walked in, and all of a sudden Peter was like, oh, my bad, and he just bailed on all the Gentiles and kind of walked away and kind of abandoned uh, them. And, that, and Paul is like, no, this cannot happen, because that's not just a social, cultural issue. You're actually negating the gospel issue here that makes us one, because you have now just re-separated what God is trying to bring together. So what's fascinating in our passage today is we are still in that confrontation 
from Paul to Peter. And because he's telling us about a time, Paul kind of like plays a little bit of uh, loosely with like, I was there to his face, but I'm also writing a letter to you guys to kind of teach you and let you know about all this. Um, So he's still talking in his letter right now to Peter in this in this interaction that he has calling him out. Um, And so verse 15, imagine again, he's talking to Peter. He just said actually in verse 14, he just said, if you though a Jew, this is to Peter, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, he's saying this is is hypocritical. How can you do this? So verse 15, speaking to Peter, we ourselves, Okay, so he just said, you, how can you do this? But we, now including himself, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Okay, so really quickly in this era and this time, right, Jews have the birthright promise of the covenant through Abraham. Okay, we're going to talk a lot about that today. Literally, because they were of Jewish heritage, they were included and accepted into this Abrahamic family. Okay, this was their birthright. This family is the family of promise that has been set apart and given God's law out of God's mercy so that they could be justified by the law and be in right relationship with God. To kind of put it like a simple way that we, we could all understand, this family was given a way to be made clean. Okay, there's a big uh, language in our scriptures about clean and unclean and what this looks like. So God made for Abraham and his descendants a way to be made clean. And they believed you could only worship God when you were clean. So the Gentiles, however, were not included in this family by birth. So they were born sinners and they remained unclean. They were not given a way to be made clean. So Paul is bringing out this historical distinction, right? This is Jewish life 101. This is not life-changing information to them. They're like, yeah, we understand this, right? But then he flips it. Verse 16, yet we, again, we are Jews by birth, but now we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is huge because now he's saying, but wait a second, now we know that there is a new way of justification, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. He's bringing up a whole new identity. He's saying, Peter, you're still seeing it as Jews and Gentiles. I'm telling you there's a whole nother creation. There's a new identity, what it means to be a Christian. Now, what it means, not, not, not what it means to be a Jew or a Gentile, but a Christian who is Jewish, a Christian who is Gentile. The identity here is switched to a faith in Christ person, and then their heritage is their personality and their eclectic and how they live that out, not heritage by birth. And here Paul tells what made that switch happen, verse 16, the the second half. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, he's, remember, he's <clears throat> including the we in that. So we, as Jews from birth, also had to believe in Jesus Christ. The Jews, <clears throat> excuse me, no longer had the only answers, and everyone had to come to them to figure it out. Even the Jews had to believe in Jesus Christ and surrender their need for justification by the law. And this was huge, right? This was, this was not just a faith 
that the Gentiles had to have because the Jews already had it. Even the Jews had to believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. Even the ones born into the promised family had to still now believe that Jesus was in fact the Christ who fulfilled the law by taking away the power of sin in the world. This language is important. Like, this is huge. This is the first time in Paul's letter in, this, in the churches of Galatia where he uses the phrase justification. This is a big deal because it's, it's a legal term, right? There's a fully legality for the, and legal reason for the Jews to move away from the law as the people. That's huge. The law is what has bound them to God forever, like until from all the way back from Abraham, right? They, they were subjects to the law of God by God himself. The official opposite phrase of justification is condemnation, right? The law given because of sin condemns sin, and if someone was in sin, then they stood condemned according to the law. But the law also provided justification or release from that condemnation through ritual and sacrificial offerings and opportunities to be made right when they were found guilty. But even then, even the Jews knew this was always meant to be temporary. They knew one day a Messiah would come and free them of this burden. But now, to be freed from that burden, to be justified forever, through faith in Jesus Christ, this is something that is hard to grasp, right? For a Jewish person to hear that there is now no longer the need for the law because there's no longer binding sin that made you unclean because it's only because of the blood of Christ that you are clean. Like, that's hard. That's hard for people that have lived a certain way for a very, very, very long time. And now Paul, he's using this language because he's offering now a legal basis that belief in Christ Jesus releases one from the law fully and acceptably to God. And this is not just some religious ploy to get out of living under some rules and regulations. Let's just find all the loopholes so we don't have to do this anymore. Like Paul is saying, you are now officially declared righteous or innocent no longer condemned by sin nor by the law if you believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. This is what happens upon belief and faith in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul has come to believe and what he thought Peter and the rest of the Jews and these Jewish Christians believed as well. And this is what he's calling them out. Don't you guys get this? It's not even just a desire that we want to be apart from the law. We actually have, we have been freed from it legally, officially, spiritually, physically. But now we come to a very important turn in Paul's letter. So again, so far, Paul has been trying to reroute these churches in their new identity in Christ, not going back or falling back into their old identity of the law. However, this begged all sorts of questions. Okay, so if there's no need for the law, can we just live lawlessly? Right? If, if now sin doesn't have a hold on us and there's no need for a law, can we just do whatever we want in the name of Christ? What is keeping me from living a morally good life if it's all been forgiven anyways? Maybe you've heard these arguments. Maybe you've said these arguments. They certainly have. And they're dealing with this right now. You can understand the confusion from a people who have lived under a certain law 
as far back as their ancestry goes. And if we don't, if wondering if we don't have the guidelines of the law, then how do we know if we are just endeavoring in lawlessness and sinfulness? Then Paul wants to address these pushbacks. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So to put it another way, does following Christ lend itself to be a more sinful lifestyle in just the terms of being able to do whatever you want to do, if it's covered by grace? If they as humans are following Christ, but because it's natural to do so, find themselves in sin, whether by choice or unintentionally, but then Christ forgave it already, is what was once considered sin inconsequential now. They're dealing with this. What does this actually mean? And to quote Paul as he says, certainly not. The problem is that this line of thinking that they were thinking much of is taking legalism the other way. Right? It's either the law is everything and we have to follow it to be justified, or it's Christ who justifies us, so the new legalistic mindset is to throw everything out and follow nothing. It's actually the exact same mindset. It's either all or nothing. Right? But this is misunderstanding what is found in Christ and what it means to put faith in something. Okay? Christ cosmically defeated sin which allows for right relationship with God to be an eternal state, not a temporary one. But it's only in faith in Jesus that he was and is that Christ and then surrender to him as Lord that justification becomes our own. Our right relationship with God is only because of the grace of Jesus. Paul says the same thing in his letters to the churches in all of Rome, not just the area of Galatia in the book of Romans, Romans 6.1. He, he uses this grace language that we don't find in Galatians, but it's the same concept. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Here in Galatians, Paul is saying Jesus is not drawing you into a sinful lifestyle by covering you into his grace. He's calling you to actually live for something more something better, something that doesn't lead to death, something that instead leads to life everlasting here on earth. So for the people of God, if they take advantage and abuse the grace that is bestowed upon them by choosing sinful actions, that is found in their own inability to surrender themselves completely to Jesus as Lord, not Jesus causing them to do so. Paul puts it this way, verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If sin remains, then it is all because of his human nature to do so. This is a human issue, which should send us to our knees in dependence on God's continued mercy and grace, not frustrated with God. But Paul is saying, if the law was torn down, but due to sin, I subject myself back to the law, then I am both my own sinner and now my own judge. Because God is no longer, he's using the law to judge his people. He's already judged sin. On the cross, God already judged sin and has now covered his people in his grace. He judged sin as guilty and pronounced his people not guilty. 
and his people now are those who put their faith in him. So instead of sitting under the law as a sinner, he's preaching for Christians to sit under grace as saved ones to a better, more free life. Paul continues in this, and it's not just about not living under the law anymore, but it's actually more than that. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul says, where the law used to give life to the believer, this is actually a dead thing now. The only life-giving way to live now is through Jesus Christ, not the law. It's not something he can go back to. He died to it. It no longer has any merit or hold on his salvation status. And through the law, when it says through the law, I died to life, through the law means that there's there's not this other way that Jesus created. So the law was over here, and Jesus created this other way so you can just forget about the law. It's actually through the law. Jesus fulfilled the law through what the law demanded. The law, showing the people their sin, demanded an offering for that sin to then be made right. Again, Romans 6, we, can, we, can, we have all of the scriptures. Galatians didn't have it, but we can go and we can be edified in this. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death. So simple logic, who sinned? Man, right? Mankind. According to the law, who needs to pay for that sin? Mankind. But Paul continues, 6, 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who took the place? Who died instead? Who was crucified as an innocent man in place of the guilty? Who was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God? Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's following in his sacrifice that brings us into that life. That's why Paul can give one of the most powerful surrender statements in all of scriptures. If we do anything in our life, let's memorize this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like I challenge you to find a more surrender passage than that. And if you do, I'll love that one too, right? But like in the, in the Greek syntax, so it starts out in Christ, I have been crucified. Like everything is just funneled through that. It's incredible. Jesus lived according to the law in practice as a Jewish man and rabbi, but his relationship with God was never due to or under the law. Jesus fulfilled the promise of right relationship with God. And now those who believe share in his sacrificial love on that cross. But here's the thing. If Jesus was not the Christ, if Jesus were, was just a prophet who did not resurrect, then we would stop here and, and we'd have a great cause and a martyr for a religious faith, right? We have a religion where Jesus took our place, took the place of a guilty, and he died on a cross so we could have a really cool leader and an image to encourage us to go do the same. But here's the thing. Through the law and what the law demanded, we can't do the same. We could never do what he did, hence why he is the Christ. Not Paul, not Peter, not a Jew, not a Gentile, not you, and not me. It's actually then in his resurrection 
This is what proves him to be the Christ, and his resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. The Christians Paul is writing to aren't just Christians because they witnessed a prophet get martyred. They are Christians because they believed that Jesus, who was killed on the cross, rose again to new life as Lord of all, that he was the long-awaited Messiah that was to fulfill all things. Again, for our encouragement today, we can look at Romans for further commentary. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Just like Jesus' death was also our death, his resurrection to new life as Lord is also our resurrection to new life under him as Lord. This is why Paul doesn't just stop at the crucifixion part. Galatians 2.20 is so huge, but it doesn't end there. 20, the second half of 20. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live in the flesh. It's not something we're waiting for, not something I've been crucified with Christ and now I just have to suffer my life until Christ comes back for me, right? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. This is it for Paul. He's still in the flesh. He's weak, and sin is still grasping at whatever it can here on earth, trying to convince people that it still has power and ties, but Jesus broke its power. Jesus completely took away any authority or rule that sin would have over God's people. So now, he, so now Paul says he can live and thrive as a sin-prone human, unafraid and unashamedly surrender to Jesus Christ as his saving grace. If that's not encouraging you, it certainly is to me. Paul has just written this incredible and thorough explanation of why now the law is not to be seen as the way to be justified, but only in the life that is now found in Christ. So Paul concludes his argument with one last punchline of chapter 2, verse 21. So I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If Peter and the Jews were going to just run back to the law when it suited them and when it was socially acceptable, then they're acting as if Christ did nothing with his death. Like, this is a very cold call out from Paul. If they're going to run back to the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul is passionate about this. But also the letter does not end here, right? Paul has brilliantly set up this justification before God only comes through belief in Christ Jesus and being under his saving grace. And now he's switching back. If you look at chapter 3, it begins back to just the main audience of Galatia. And he's, he's been telling him about his Peter encounter. He's going to move towards now. What does this life look like? And the next couple chapters are going to say, and it's full of life. What does this life I live now in the flesh through the Spirit, through faith in Christ, what does this actually look like now? It's going to get a little practical. It's going to get exciting because it's awesome. Because if we can get on board and believe 
that is through Christ that we have been saved by grace alone, then there's a whole new life to live. But he's switching back, and he starts it kind of brutal. Verse, or chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right? It's impossible to read the first two chapters of Galatians and not feel a bit of heat from Paul, because he's not, he's not debating clever theology or even giving credit to what these false brothers are teaching. He equates it to being bewitched. The message translation from Eugene Peterson, I just, it puts it so eloquently. It says, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a spell on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Paul continues, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Right, but we, we don't really have this as much today, but it's incredible for Paul to be able to write to a people who were eyewitnessed of Jesus' crucifixion. All right, we today, we've read about it, we've believed it, right? we've seen some, like, some modern-day depictions of it in movies or books or pictures or whatever, but Paul's audience, he says, you were there. You saw it. You felt it. Maybe they heard the ground rumble. They heard the curtain tour. Maybe they heard the centurion at the bottom of the Christ say, surely this was the Son of God. You were there. And Paul uses a few contrasting statements. He says, are, verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's using these kind of these contrasting statements. What has begun in the Spirit, you are now trying to turn back to the flesh. God supplied the Spirit, but you are now turning back to the law so that you can do it on your own. Did God give you his spirit because of your works or because of your hearing of faith or hearing with faith? You heard the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and you believed. Is that works or is that faith? And Paul wants to make something clear. What began in the spirit is continued in the spirit. The flesh is no longer the marker for righteousness, but the spirit that works in and through the flesh to produce fruit that is built on loving God and loving one another. And he concludes with this kind of slam-bang finish. He busts out Father Abraham. Remember, a huge argument for the Jews against the Gentiles was that they had this birthright of children of Abraham, whereas the Gentiles did not. Right? Where they say the Gentiles sinners, but we were Jews by birth. Paul makes this bold claim, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this isn't just something that Paul actually just wrote just to write it. He's actually quoting Genesis here. And real quickly, Abraham, if you remember him, came, back from, a, came from a pagan background and God called him to a different life. God promised that through Abraham, he would create a great nation of his people set apart to be a blessing upon the world. Hopefully this is all very familiar. Abraham pushes back. He says, but I don't have a son. I don't have land. I don't have anything. God, how are you going to do this? Well, God tells him, I'm going to provide for you a son. In Genesis 15, 5, God says this, look toward heaven and number the stars. 
if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul's quoting this. He's, he's referencing back to this. What did Abraham do or what action was to be counted as righteousness? Belief. Abraham believed God. Before he did anything, he believed God will do what he says he will do. Paul is going super OG here, right? Even Father Abraham, who was held in like the highest esteem, it was his belief that was counted as his righteousness. So now back to Galatians 3, verse 7. Paul says, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Jewish, Gentile, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done, what's been done to you. There's no wall dividing those who can enter this faith family. Only those who truly believe in Jesus as Christ are now sons and daughters of this Abrahamic family who ultimately is God's family. That should be so encouraging and talk about unity and oneness here. Verse 8, and the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul says that the scriptures actually foretold that the nation that will be a blessing to all was not just to the Jewish people but would include the Gentiles, would include being spread out to the corners of the world. This blessing is actually not a blessing if it's exclusively only for one people group, and it could not be passed along. Like, how is that a blessing? So Paul concludes, verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Man, Paul is just single-handedly giving the argument for being freed from the law and against those who would say otherwise, and that goes for Gentiles and for the Jews. And what Paul is establishing is not that works don't matter. The rest of this letter, as I said, is about what it means to live a godly life. And it's a long-standing debate. I'm sure you've been in it and probably heard it in just our Christian church today of what, what is it? Is it works? Is it faith? What are we supposed to do? Again, the same question. What does it look like to be a person of God today? And the main concern here for Paul is to re-encourage that they don't want a works-based salvation because if they do, then it's completely up to them, right? How is it gospel or good news to say, well, God came down, to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for all sins, resurrected to new life, and you still have to live under the same law. Like, how, how is that gospel? I'm just curious. What was the point then? There should be a fundamental switch in the why Christians would do good things and want to work for the reconciliation of all things. It's not because we have to, right? It's because the free gift of grace and the unconditional self-sacrificial love of Christ compels his people to do so, because he is Lord of his people. This issue of intentionally or unintentionally falling back to works-based righteousness was a very real issue for the Christians in Galatia. It's a very real issue for our church today, right? We can still feel this innate desire. I don't know if you felt this. I feel it all the time to clean ourselves up before we can come and worship God, right? Then we equate God with things like church, right? So many people can't walk into a building without feeling judged. 
And some of that, yes, is, is religion's fault for sure, but I'm not talking about like religion or the institution of it, but a relationship with God. Like think about closest friend. Could be a spouse, could be a friend from a different part of life, could be your dog, and that's okay. It's okay here, we like dogs. Now in a, think about being in a time of desperate, desperate need, where you feel alone, you've hit a huge low. Do you run from that friend? Do you need to clean up before you go to the person who knows you best and loves you no matter what? Like, hopefully, of course not, right? Certainly not, to use Paul's language, right? That's why they have the place they do in your life, because they know you best and they've already accepted you for who you are. Listen, God made us. God knows us more than we know ourselves, more than anyone could ever know us. Well, what I think church culture in general, myself included, need to kind of get just from the head to the heart everywhere, holistically, that we don't scare God with our messiness. And we also don't impress God with our holiness, right? God is holiness. I, I heard a quote one time that's super silly, so I apologize, it's on the internet forever, but it said, God has seen you go to the bathroom. You don't impress God. Like, I don't know why that hit me. We'll edit it out later. No, like, we don't impress God was the point. I'm easily impressed, apparently. But here's the thing. God is holiness, but God is pleased with us in our surrender to His holiness. He wants to give His holiness to us. When we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is our spiritual worship. But instead, we can often get caught up in making earthly things our confidence before God. And we'll get into this a bit more next week. Paul is getting into some juicy stuff. But we are really good at taking good things, things that aren't bad in themselves, but we make them God things. We make them ultimate things. And we have to re-gospel ourselves over and over again and feel the freedom of Christ's work in and through us that is righteousness, not our own works. And I want to end, there's a lot of people I could quote, but um, Tim Keller um, has been an influential voice in my life, and he has this great little book. It's called Galatians for You. It's his little commentary on Galatians, and it's really helpful. So not, he, he had a much better said quote I want to end with. He says, the way to progress as a Christian is continually to repent and uproot these systems in the same way that we became Christians, by the vivid depiction and redepiction of Christ's saving work for us and the abandoning of self-trusting efforts to complete ourselves. We must go back again and again to the gospel of Christ crucified so that our hearts are more deeply gripped by the reality of what He did and who we are in Him. Man, that hits, right? This is why every Sunday we don't just sit under the Word and worship God just for our own edification, right? But we respond to God with our actual lives, right? With our words and proclamation of who we are in light of who God is, with our prayers and dependence upon His grace and power, right? We receive the blessings to them be a blessing people. He has given us so that we can be a, a blessing to others all around, and we center ourselves at the feet of Jesus remembering the cross. We're going to go to communion today, 
that when you go, just remember that you're symbolizing what we've received and that free gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is only by grace that we can be justified through Christ to God. So we're going to respond to that today. We're going to respond with our lives and be shaped as a people and a community and a church together. So let me pray and let's worship our God together.